The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Amen. Praise the Lord, Downtown Church. Amen. Amen. Let's put our hands together for Jesus one time. Amen. I was, um, I was shocked when uh, Mike asked me to uh, share today because I do have a lot of jokes. <laughs> uh, but Mike has been a dear brother um, since our time at Covenant, and we actually met in the stacks at the library, and we was looking for books, and I was like, oh, shoot, there's another black person. <laughs> so it was at that moment that we just decided we gonna be best friends now. So that was, but uh, no, it's it's been a absolute joy and pleasure to get to know him, his wonderful wife Serena, uh, MJ, and it is just a pleasure to be here to share the word of God on such a special day, and to watch him be installed as the teaching pastor here. Um, you know, we we joke about you know how we met, but honestly, Mike is a brother of mine, uh, a lifetime, lifelong friend who means the world to me, and who. Uh, who, and, and what makes it so special is that he actually knows me, not the, you know, stuff that people read on a bio page, but he knows me, the good, the bad, the ugly, the in the middle, um, and he still walks with me as a brother in Christ, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that God has sent him as a gift here to downtown church to serve and shepherd you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, I see how you're looking at me, and um, you're trying to figure out if I can preach. And I'm trying to figure out if you can say amen. So how about we stop looking at each other and look to God's word and see what our good father has to say to us. Amen. 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 Uh, this morning, my dear sister read in your hearing Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Uh, and I want to tag this text with the title, A Fight Worth Watching. A Fight Worth Watching. Uh, a few months ago, there was a sensational fight that was uh, put on pay-per-view all over the place for everyone to see, and it was the Mayweather and McGregor fight. Now, some people decided that they were going to go for Mayweather. They said, okay, Mayweather is, one of the, is probably the best technical boxer in the history of boxing. And so he was in his native space in the ring, and so people were like, I'm going to bag Mayweather. Some people decided, I'm going to bag, uh, I'm going to back uh, McGregor because I don't like Mayweather. I don't like his bragging. I don't like his lifestyle. I don't like anything about any of them. And so I'm a bag McGregor. Um, then there were people like me who didn't think the fight was worth my time at all. I was like, you know what? I don't even know if this, this is going to be something worth watching because Mayweather is going to dance around the ring. He ain't going to get hit. May, McGregor don't know what he's doing. He's an MMA fighter. I don't even know if this is worth my time. So I am not going to pay money to watch this when I have important things to do. Instead, I'm going to do what people like me do, which is get on Facebook Live and Periscope and find a free stream <laughs> of the fight. Now, you might be saying to me, preacher, that doesn't sound ethical. That sounds like stealing. And the Christian ethicists are still, the jury is still out on whether or not stealing pay-per-view fights through live streaming is a crime yet. So when, when John Frame finishes that up out of Westminster, I'll let you know what he, what he thinks. But 
The reality is, is that there are some fights that are not worth watching. There are some things that are just not worth our time. And as we examine this text for today, what we see is that God tells us that the Christian life is actually like a fight. It's like a struggle. It's not something passive. It's not something that just happens, something that we allow to fly by us. But it's something that is active, sustained, and takes a striving and a fighting. And what Paul tells the Philippian church is that I don't want you to be a fight that's not worth watching. Whether I hear of what you're doing or whether I'm there, whether I'm catching you on pay-per-view, I want to know that you are striving together and that you are working. And Paul said, there's only one type of fight that is worth watching. There's only one type of striving that is worth watching. And it is the life, the life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to share with you that a life that is given to political ideology is not a life or a fight that is worth watching. A life that is given to racism and nationalism and superiority is not a life that's worth watching. A life that's given to materialism, to amassing wealth, to amassing how many toys you can get before you go to the cemetery is not a life that is worth watching. But the apostle tells us that a life that is worth watching, it is a life that is completely sold out to something that is so much higher than any of us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the story that there is a God who has been looking for a rebellious, wayward, wandering people ever since Genesis chapter 3 when he said, Adam, where are you? The gospel is the story that there is a God who cares so much for you and me that he would leave his own comfort to come to earth and not be a king. Can I tell you that the incarnation would have been good enough if Jesus had came down here and been the richest man on earth. Just the fact that he condescended from the balconies and glories of heaven and came to live and walk in a place like this, even if he was the most wealthy man to ever live, would have still been incredibly glorious. But the gospel is that he came and he lived a life of no good worth in terms of wealth and in terms of what he had. But he was a carpenter and he lived. And he loved and he healed and he walked with his people and he ultimately gave the ultimate sacrifice to secure a race of rebels. And Paul says the only life that's worth living is the one that is striving for the gospel. And people of God, downtown church, Mike, I want to encourage you that this striving, as the apostle tells us in this text, is a striving that is to be together. That it is not just the pastor, that it's all of us working together for the advancement of the only thing that can save any of the souls, redeem Memphis, and translate us from the old creation into the new creation. And so he says, only let your life, be, your manner of life be worthy. Paul's openness opens this passage by saying, only. What he's saying, I only got one thing for you. I only got one job for you. I want you to have a manner of life that looks like the gospel. That word there that we translated as manner of life is actually a word that has to do with citizenship obligations. You see, the church that he wrote to, the Philippian church, was a church that was a Roman colony. What that means is that they were equated as Roman citizens. So that means they had the privileges, the prestige, the tax freeness of a Roman citizen. And so Paul was writing to some people who took great pride in their citizenship. 
And so he was saying, your manner of life needs to look like, yes, you're on earth. Yes, you're in one place. Yes, you're in Memphis. But your citizenship is in heaven. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Your, your, Your citizenship is not like, yes, it's true enough. Yeah, true enough. You're an American. But you have a greater nation to stand up for. You have a greater identity than your patriotism. You belong to the new creation, the already not yet reality of the rebirth and recreation of the entire cosmos. So live a life that looks like it. And so he tells them, let your manner of life, what this has to do with is our goals, our priorities, how we think, how we walk, how we act. Everything is encompassed in this idea of our manner of life. Now, it's only one thing, a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. But like a good preacher, you thought I found three things, but I found four. So I got four points today. Y'all want to know what they are? (laughs) I found four, four things. There are two things as we live this manner of life that we must fight for, and there are two things that we must fight against. So the first thing that we must fight for, a life that is worthy of the gospel, is a fight for unity. Say unity. Unity. Paul says in verse uh, 27, he says, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Paul sounds like a general commanding his forces to stand firm. Now, you know, me and Mike went to to Covenant and he talked about education. Might sound like I'm smart. I'm not really that smart, okay? I didn't do good in physics. I, I had a hard time in physics. I couldn't take data it was really bad, okay? I just didn't understand how all that worked. I, I didn't know how to calculate gravity, but I learned one thing in physics, something that was fi- fascinating to me. I found out that in order to resist something that's pushing against you, an equal or greater force has to be exerted. Let me say that again. In order to resist something that is pushing against you, an equal or greater force has to be exerted against the other force. And saints of God, when Paul is saying, stand firm, that is not a passive act. I know the walls don't look like they're moving in here, but the walls in this building are are exerting uh, exerting a force, and that's the reason why the building has not caved in on us, because the walls are, are exerting a force, and the implication is that there is something that is pushing against us. And people of God, do not be deceived. There are external forces that are pushing against the church that we have to resist and push against constantly. The world is pushing against us, telling us that if we don't have the same uh, educational attainment, then maybe we shouldn't be in the same space together. The world is telling us that if we don't vote exactly the same, then we can't share space together. And the sad thing is that some churches are listening. The world is telling us that if we are not the same race or the same ethnicity, that we should not share space But Paul says, I need you to stand firm against all of the lies that the world may try to exert against you. And so we don't divide just because we look a little different. Just because I fry my chicken and you bake yours. We ain't going to divide. We're going to work it out. We're not going to divide because I like sweet potato pie and you like pumpkin pie. We're not dividing over that. No, no, no. No. The, The unity... Of the gospel. I like pumpkin pie too. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Pumpkin, sweet cider. I take it either way. Amen. My, my Thanksgiving table is united. So if you want to minister to me, pumpkin or sweet potato, holler at me after service. I don't discriminate at all. Amen. Amen. But 
we don't we don't we don't divide over these secondary issues. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. When Paul talks about unity of mind and spirit, it doesn't mean that good godly people are not going to get together and disagree sometimes. But it means that we but that we don't allow these secondary and tertiary issues to become divisive. And so not only are there external forces and external mindsets that the enemy is trying to push upon us, but then there are internal stuff. Let's just be honest. Let's, look, look, I come from a denomination, you know, we got a good nickname called the Brawling Baptist. Now, look, we're known for dividing over stuff. I know Presbyterians don't have this problem ever, but sometimes in Baptist churches, things can get a little hairy, you know. And so y'all don't have those issues. I understand it. I'm in an EPC church. It's all good. But if we're all honest... If we're all honest, many of the divisions that happens in our church are not because somebody denied the Trinity. Most of the divisions that happen in our church is not because people don't understand a hypostatic union. Most of the divisions that happen in our church are because of big personalities that won't yield. They're because of big personalities that have to get their way. And they take a, it's my way or the highway mentality. And we are willing to split churches, not over the gospel, but we split church over preferences. Over things that we want. Because I want a Hammond B3 and you want acoustic guitars and now we can't get along. And so we split churches, we divide. But God has called us to fight for unity. He's called us to fight for togetherness. And a life that is worthy of the gospel is willing to fight for the togetherness of the people of God. And Paul gives us in Philippians 2 a very pragmatic way to push back on the division that the world would try to give to us. Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God has called us not only just look for ourselves, but to look out for one another. And if we are watching one another's back, our back going to be good because somebody watching our back. Amen? It's kind of like uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Forrest Gump. And one of my favorite scenes in Forrest Gump came out back in the day. Maybe I dated myself, I don't know. But uh, Forrest Gump was a great movie. But one of my favorite scenes was that Forrest and Bubba, his friend, who were, they were both in Vietnam, and they was, it was raining, and it was real wet, and it was swampy, and they were sitting in a swamp. And Bubba said, Forrest, you sleep up with my back up against your back, and I sleep my back up against your back, and then neither one of us have to have our face in the mud. And I was like, hmm, what if more churches understood that? The reason why so many of us as the people of God end up with our face in the mud is because we're unwilling to put our back against the back of unbeliever, uh, of another believer. And so we're so busy being at odds that rather than lean on each other, we're repelling each other and we both end up with our face in the mud. But God has called us to be gentle, to yield. It is better in the the house of God. I know our culture tells us something different, but it is better to yield and maybe give too much ground than to be aggressive and undermine your brother and sister. Be willing to yield. Be willing to a fault to defer to your brother. Count others more significant than yourself. And so Paul teaches us in this text that we ought to fight for unity. But he also teaches us something else that we must fight for is that we must fight for the gospel. That's right. The scripture tells us that we need to strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. 
This word here for striving, it means to work, to toil, to to slave, to put all of your energy into. Paul says work together for the advance of the gospel. People of God, we have we cannot, especially in our day and age today, we cannot take the gospel, just the content of the gospel, for granted. We can't just assume that, you know, Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition and those guys got it unlocked, you know, so we ain't got to worry about contending for the gospel. People of God, there are friendly neighborhood cultists right here in Memphis. We got them in St. Louis. I know we got them right here. If you ain't ran into them, just keep walking around. Your, your Jehovah Witness friends, they're going to knock on your door and cheerfully will tell you that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. They will cheerfully read from a translation that has no translation committee at all and tell you all types of things about Jesus and his work. Keep living. I'm sure they got them here in Memphis. They got them in St. Louis. This group of guys called the Black Hebrew Israelites who will tell you that you are that the African Americans, you are the true Israel, and that white people are supposed to be slaves to serve you. So you should never reconcile with those Esau uh, white people. They're right here in, in, in Memphis. And there are people who are making all type of mistakes with the gospel and biblical theology, and we cannot give them one inch. Because the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel is the only message that is spring-loaded with the energy to redeem men and women. And if we give up the gospel, we give up the power to transform our communities. We give up the power to transform this city. We give up the power to transform this nation. And so we have to contend together. We can't put it on autopilot. But notice... Paul says, striving side by side. I know Mike just got charged preaching the gospel to brother. He pre- I mean, he charged him so good. I, I thought it was a sermon. I wasn't even going to preach. I was just going to get up, give a benediction, go on home, try to find some good food to eat in downtown Memphis. I mean, the brother, the, 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 the brother bought it. But it's not just Mike, contrary to what it may sound like, but it's all of us. The Philippian church the letter to the Philippian church was written to the whole congregation. There's this wonderful doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. That means that all of us who have been translated from death into life are now prophets, priests, and kings before God. So that means that each and every one of us has a portion in upholding and maintaining the centrality and the purity of the gospel. And so, yes, it is good that we have sharp pastors like Richard and Mike, but that does not let you off the hook. That does not mean that you get to come every Sunday and sit and soak or go to community groups and just take in a word and just sit there and take great notes and never mobilize and activate the gospel in your own life. God has called us. The reason why he is pouring into you, the reason why he has given us pastors, the reason why he has given us men and women to teach and evangelize and to show us and disciple us and shepherd us and to show us who God is, is so that we can take the gospel out into the marketplace. So that we can take the gospel into the city. You know, um, I, uh, I, went, I played football. I, pro- I pretty much had to because I'm this big, but I hated it, okay? Um, I, my dad made me. My dad, he was trying to live his dreams vicari- vicariously through me because he was an all-state football player, and so he made me play football. Like, I didn't even have a choice. He was just, you playing football. And so I went and played football. I said, fine, okay, I'll give this a shot. So I went and played football, and they put me on an offensive line because I'm this big, okay? And so they said, and I was bigger then, I think, maybe. But uh, they said, hey, you stand here and push against the other big guy that's pushing against you. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just pushing big guys around. 
But over time, being an offensive guard, I learned something. I learned how important my role was. I learned that I had to open holes for the running back in order for him to get through. I learned that I had to keep the pocket clear so that the quarterback could connect to the wide receiver. I learned that no matter how good our quarterback was, if I let the other 300-pound guy knock his head off, it really didn't matter that much. And so, listen, we might, we might look at Mike, we might look at Richard and say, man, there's some good quarterbacks. There's some good pass. Listen to Mike preach. Boy, that boy, he can break it. Look at Richard. He know how to preach and teach and shepherd. Look at, and we might be looking at them, but it does no good if the body of Christ is not doing their job. It's not all up to the pastors and the elders. It's up to us. The letter to the Philippians, he said, strive together. All of us working together to do what God has called us to do. So we saw two things that we are to fight for. But there are two things, quickly, that we must fight against. The first thing that a life worthy of the gospel must fight against is fear. Look at verse 28. Paul says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that's from God. This word for frightened here, I think that even richer translation might even be intimidate. The picture here was of a stampede of horses that had been startled and ran into every direction. And people of God, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do to us. He wants us running scared. He wants to frighten us with the potential of persecution or marginalization or irrelevancy. I think that's one of the things that we scared of most as Christians in the 21st century, in America at least. We're scared of being irrelevant. And so he sets all these things up and he wants us to be afraid and he wants us to, to, to use that fear as a way to enclose. And so the enemy wants us to become this closed little group of folks and become afraid of the very people we should be trying to reach. He wants us to become afraid and to close up from those gang members that we encounter. He wants us to be afraid of the, our Muslim neighbors that we should be trying to reach. He wants us to be afraid of that heroin addict that might overdose tonight because we don't want that stuff to infect our family. And so the enemy uses fear so that we close up. But people of God, one of the ways that we push against fear and not become intimidated is to show the radical love and demonstrate the love of Christ in a radical, uncharacteristic way. Because the enemy wants to shut us down with fear. But if we lean into the love of Christ, if we lean into demonstrating the gospel and become the beloved community that God has called us to be, we can actually push back against the fear that the world would try to push upon us. You see, your fearlessness will show that you are no longer under the current age, but that you have been redeemed for the age to come. Fearlessness will show that you fear God rather than man. Fearlessness will show that the evidence that you, or your fearlessness is evidence that you have taken up your cross and have actually died. You see, the reality of it is the reason why we fear is because I don't think many of us have really, really died on our cross yet. Jesus is on the cross in our life, but we haven't got that union with Christ thing down. That I died, not only did Christ die for me, very true but that I died with Christ. And now my life is hidden with him in heaven. 
And so now I can give my whole life away because I'm a dead man walking. Anybody ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> Bernie wasn't scared of nothing. Bernie be walking into the sea, in the traffic, because Bernie was already dead. Bernie wasn't worried about getting hit by a car. Bernie was dead. And brothers and sisters, I want us to, I think Jesus wants us to get our sanctified Holy Ghost weekend at Bernie's own. We need to be walking dead men and women who have died to ourselves, died to flesh, and died to fear, so we can radically love those that the world tells us we should be against. And so we have to fight against fear. Finally, a life worthy of the gospel. It is a life that is fighting for unity. It's fighting for the gospel. It's fighting against fear. And lastly, it's fighting against comfort. This is a hard one, y'all, because we're Americans. Every single one of us want our comfort. Y'all, we, we want our comfort food. We want, we want everything now. We don't even, I, I was reading an article by an MMA fighter, and it was fascinating because she actually said, she said, when is the last time, she said, our culture is so pampered, when is the last time something rough even touched your skin? I was like, wow. And so we live in a culture that tells us to preserve our comfort, to not get uncomfortable. But look at what the text says. Look at verse 29. Paul says, it has been granted to you. For the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, faith is cool, but that you should suffer for his sake. It has been granted, literally, literally in the Greek. That means that it is a gracious gift. That God will give you the gift of suffering. God will give you the gift of something to make you so uncomfortable that you don't know which way is up. Now, our brothers and sisters in Philippi, they were facing physical, uh, imminent persecution that could cost their lives. They were facing the taking of their property and the taking of their housing. They were taking, facing something very physical. Many of our brothers throughout the world are facing that very real reality today. And while in America, we're, I, don't, I don't think we're quite at that point, but we are still facing the reality of marginalization, of being pushed out the marketplace, of becoming culturally irrelevant, and God is calling us to lean into that discomfort. Downtown Church is such a beautiful site to look out and see the diverse faces, but y'all do know that the fact that you are choosing to remain diverse across socioeconomic, across racial, across educational lines is in itself an act of rebellion in our culture today. Our culture is hyper-divided. In every possible way. People of God, the fact that you are still pressing into this is an act of rebellion. And I know it's not always comfortable, okay? I know it's not always, you know, as wonderful as it looks in photo ops. It looks great, right? But there are some real cultural issues, right? Like elections matter racially, right? But the fact that you all are still pressing in through all of the friction is in itself an act of rebellion. And I want to encourage you to continue to lean into that discomfort. Continue to lean into it. I, I know, look, frankly, my church is all black. We so black, it's black, black. Like blue, black, okay? Every, everybody black. Everybody black. We got, we, 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 we're a pretty decent church. I always feel bad. People ask me like, well, how many white folks your church? Like, we have four. And I always pray for them. I tell them, I pray for them real hard around February because I tell them it's a historically black church. Church is 171 years old. I tell them, I'm like, y'all, it's going to get so black in here. Like, 
For real. Like, it's February. You are in a historically black church. If you need to come to me for pastoral support and counsel, you come because it's going to get serious. And so I know firsthand it is easier to be in a mono-ethnic environment. It's just easier, right? There's some conversations you don't have to have. But the gospel itself is a call not to create a bunch of little mono-ethnic spaces, but to create one new man in Christ. And that is going to call for some discomfort. You know, this is groundbreaking for these pagans that were hearing this. Groundbreaking information. Because they had no concept of suffering for their God. You appeased your God. You took them offerings, you took them money, you did this so that they give you good crops and children and things like that. But there was no concept of suffering for a God. But people of God, we have the only God in the history of religion that embraced suffering. Not haphazardly suffered, but suffered on purpose. To redeem people that did not like him in the first place. And so as the people of God, who has a God who bears the nail marks in his hands, suffering and discomfort has become a gift of grace. And so we have to push against our tendency to want to flee into comfort. To flee into what makes us feel good. Because we are never more like Jesus than when we are enduring redemptive suffering. This is why Acts 5.41, while the apostles rejoiced, when they came from being beaten by the Sanhedrin because they had been counted worthy to suffer. This is why Paul, he declares in Philippians 3 that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. And so people of God, to know Jesus is to die. To know Jesus is to be called into a depth of self that is legitimately painful. You're going to have to give us some legitimate things that legitimately hurt, that legitimately could feel better, but you also will inherit a life that you never imagined. And so we embrace this redemptive suffering. This is what the apostle says in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, not only do we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so it's a high day, it's a great day, but God has not called us to get stagnant. He's called us to push through. You know, I've seen this uh, really interesting uh, video, it was going around on social media, and it was with a rabbi. And he was talking about lobsters. Now that was fascinating in itself because I don't think uh, that's a clean animal, but whatever. The, the rabbi was talking about lobsters, and he was talking about how lobsters grow. Now, I eat them, they're delicious at Red Lobster, but I, didn't, I never thought that hard about how they grew. But the rabbi talked about how they're, they're a soft, mushy animal, and at some point in their shell, they get too cramped, and they can't grow anymore. So in order to grow, they have to scrape up against rocks to get the shell off, and then bury themselves under a rock. An incredible discomfort to protect themselves from the predatory fish that can get a hold of them while they grow a bigger shell. And they have to go through such discomfort in order to grow beyond where they are. Down church, downtown church, I'm here to tell you that God may have you just like a little lobster. He might put you in a place of discomfort to grow you, but he is trying to make your shell a little bigger. 
He is trying to take you to a place and take you to a place in the spirit that you have never seen. But in order for you to grow, in order for you to develop, in order for you to go to the next level, in order for you to mature as the bride of Christ in this local area, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. But I'm here to tell you that Christians never get uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable. It is always because God is trying to grow us, mature us, and sanctify us, and purify us. So I want to encourage you today, people of God, to lean into the discomfort that God has given unto us. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Continue to strive to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. It's not an easy life. It's not a comfortable life. But it's the only life that will glorify Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, God, we thank you. God, we praise you for calling us into a place of death. God, you have called us not to ease, not to comfort, but to take up our cross daily and follow you. God, this isn't easy. It's way easier to preach about than to do it. But Father, I thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost that gives us not only preaching power, but dying power. And then resurrecting power to live under the power of the kingdom of God. Father, I pray for this church. God, I thank you for my dear brother Mike. God, I thank you for all of the incredible gifts that you have given him. I thank you for everything that you have done in his life. I thank you for his wife Serena. I thank you for his family. God, I thank you that all the way back, way back in St. Louis, God, when he was living in U City a long time ago, God, you were already superintending every aspect of his life to providentially prepare him for this people at this moment. So, Father, I thank you for your sovereignty over his life. God, I thank you for downtown church. I thank you for the journey of downtown church that they have come through. God, I thank you for the way you plan to use this church, God, to impact this city. God, I thank you that you have been preparing both pastor and people for one another, God. Not for our glory. Not so that we can look wonderful. Not so that we can look smart or brilliant. But so that you can be, get the glory. God, because your name is worthy of all the glory, of all the praise. And Father, I pray for this pastor, I pray for this people, that from this place right here in downtown Memphis, God, that the gospel would advance and transform this city to your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.